good afternoon, good morning, or good evening, and welcome to the American Age podcast. This is your host, C. Travis Webb, editor of the American Age, and I am speaking to you from Irvine, California. Hi, this is Stephen G. Fullwood, and I am the exhibition coordinator for Marking Time, Art in the Age of Mass Incarceration, which is on view now at Brown University, September 16th through December 18th. And please come by and check us out. I, however, am coming to you from Harlem, and it is a nice, brisk fall morning. Uh, This is to remind our listeners that we practice a form of what we like to call intellectual intimacy, which is giving each other the space and time to figure out things out loud and together. Um, And Seth is uh, not with us uh, once again this week, but should be returning in a couple of weeks. He's still in his writing retreat, which uh, I have been told is going well for him, which is uh, great to hear. So he's getting good work done. Steven, yeah, this was your, I mean, it's kind of a, a list yeah. of threes, right? We're doing, we're doing yeah. our, our top threes. Uh, and, and Steven had a kind of a rough framework, but you know, we may go off book from that, uh, as, as is possible. So, yeah. um, you want to get us going? Sure. 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 So the conversation, just to give people some, I was thinking of things I could ask Travis that I wanted to know. And, uh, the last week I've actually been kind of rushing about uh, with projects and whatnot. So I really hadn't put my mind on it the way I wanted to. Um, But what came up to me was that I'm always interested in cultural, what people eat culturally and repeatedly, like the same thing over and over again. And there there are books and films and music I return to all the time, Um, sometimes yearly, sometimes, you know, five, six years. But there are things I return to because there's something there for me and in addition to it being comfortable and knowing the passages or or listening to that that music refrain, I sometimes I hear something different. And so I'm forever mm. People Magazine, Reader Digest kind of guy in the sense that I'm, <laughs> what are your favorite three things? And um, mm-hmm. the writer Mindy Kaling, who was on The Office at the Mindy, Mindy Kaling show, mm. She has a book um, where she goes, I used to write down like the 10 things that I like just in case someone asked me and I'd have the list in my pocket. (laughs) And I was like, that's charming. That's kind of interesting. (laughs) But I like those sort of um, those reflexive biographical exercises where you kind of think about what you think. Why do you like this? Why are you here all the time? Yeah, yeah. You know, and so I so that's kind of the general sense. And I, I. selfishly start with um, film. I was wondering what three films Travis was interested in. And then I said, okay, if you're not interested in that, what are the three places you'd like to visit? Not like to visit, places you'd visit repeatedly over and over again Mm -hmm. or have repeatedly Mm -hmm. visit over and over. And the third one was go where where Travis is, philosophy. What are your three favorite (laughs) philosophers? So that's the general origin story, a little bit of the framework. And as we talk, um, yeah, I guess we'll just get into these things that, um, that charm us, that are interesting to us. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think, and, and I'll get started with three movies in a second. Do you think, um, Mm -hmm. do you think that there is information to be mined in that, in those lists? Um, Mm -hmm. or, or do you think um, they're just sort of um, kind of interesting accessories, ways that you flesh out a character? You know what I mean? Like, so are they are they insightful necessarily? I mean, for some people, you know, if I was like, you know, Triumph of the Will or something, like they're like, right. oh, I just learned something very new about Travis. Yeah. Um, but 
you know, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, just, I'm curious, like how, how you feel about them. Like, do you feel like they give you insight or do you feel like they just sort of, you know, kind of, uh, flesh the person out? A little bit of both, a little bit of both in a sense that it really depends on who's talking and what he, she, or they are letting, um, let be known about themselves. Right. When I say People Magazine, I remember sure, reading sure. What's a Cure for Insomnia? And they had, you know, they had uh, Andy Warhol, Aretha Franklin, some other folks. And this is like two or three decades ago. And I remember Andy Warhol saying, um, actually, Aretha said, I iron. I just get up and iron until I go back to sleep. You know, so she's like, you know, I'm going to make good, good use of this time. And Andy Warhol's statement was masturbation and period. And I remember just being really kind of as a kid going, what the fuck did I just read? <laughs> you know, so is it was both intriguing, but also a little bit, well, how, what do you do with that? And so, but it, it's those kinds of things that um, I think biographers for sure are interested in or people who just like people and they want to know more about this particular celebrity or athlete or politician. Um, for me... Yeah. Like the way that I interview my relatives, I I'm looking for those she liked to write in her recipe books, you know, her own recipes, you know, these. I want to know those things. I think mm. they do offer some flavor, even though they may, like I said, uh, depending on who they come from, they may not be the truth. But um, but I still am interested in the way people think about themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's I guess it's really it's in some ways not in some ways, I guess it's insightful either way. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, if what sort of what the person wants to represent to the world tells you something about them, Mm -hmm. uh, pretty significant as well, I think. I agree. And I think that with the internet, we hear more of it like exponentially. Mm. So many more things about what people think about themselves because social media, because You know, yeah. selfie sticks walking down the street. Here's where I'm at right now. Don't you want to know where I'm at? <laughs> I mean, it's I um I could I, I think what I'm mostly interested in is the rendering of the experience as um as it relates to who you would like how you would like to represent yourself and, and and in some ways this is the thing that you want to be seen as, right? So maybe it's aspirational. You know, there are a lot sure. of, yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. know how um, up you are on Instagram and Instagram influencers, but there's a lot of media around people pretending to have a lifestyle that they don't have to sell a product. Sure. And I'm like, yeah, that's just regular life, I think. But I think we just have more people doing it. <laughs> and I think that that given our economy, more people are interpreters and trying to sell you whatever it is they sell, want to sell you, you know, from exercise to your, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a a spot on insight. It it isn't any different than I mean, it used to be called keeping up with the Joneses, right? That's, that's exactly what right. Used to call. The, I Absolutely. mean, it's but now it's but now on Instagram it's this other thing, mm-hmm. but it's not this other thing. It's just it's a different way to represent this thing that's been uh, around for so. a super long time. Yeah, Absolutely. for sure. You know. So what um, are these? Okay, so three three, films three movies. Yours? Okay, all right, so. Um, I, so I saw the questions and, um, I thought about them a little bit, but I decided not to think about them too much because I didn't want to get too much in my head about like, oh, you know, well, maybe this, maybe that. Okay. Okay. So more, I wanted to treat it, you know, kind of like just, we're having a conversation and you ask me the question and I, you know, sort of come up with what I come up with. Mm -hmm. Um, so I would say first and probably most pretentiously, 
though it is genuine, um, okay. is an Akira Kurosawa film called Ikiru. Yeah. People um, love that film. Mm-hmm. Do you, yeah, I, I love that film and I, I love the film for a very specific reason, okay. which is, uh, I mean, obviously it's, you know, kind of, uh, it's sort of inspiring in that the main character has, whose name, uh, it's not, it's not Watanabe. Is it? I can't remember his name right now. But, I saw it years um, ago, I think. It, uh, <laughs> so, main character, so to gloss the plot really quickly, mm-hmm. uh, main character is kind of a civil servant post war Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, these uh, industrialization is, you know, kind of happening at a breakneck speed or uh, rapid. Modernization, I should say, industrialization had already hit Japan uh, earlier, but rapid modernization is is happening at a breakneck speed. Mm-hmm. Kids in a relatively poor neighborhood no longer have a place to play, and these mothers come into the prefecture to to complain that you know all this construction. They keep being led in this loop from state. Well, that's that department. Well, that's the that department. That's that department. That's that department. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of going, you know, in a kind of pick your word, Kafka esque, you know, you know, whatever. It's mm-hmm, absurd mm-hmm. bureaucracy. And the the main character uh, learns uh, later that day that he has uh, cancer and he's going to die. Okay, and he has this kind of. Mm, moment where he you know sort of you know he's kind of this is a body blow for him and he um uh, meets this young uh woman in his office who is kind of full of life and this sort of inspires him and he tries to reconnect with his son but his son's estranged from him and mm-hmm. etc but anyway he decides that with his few remaining days is sort of this this knowledge kind of transforms him and with mm-hmm. his few remaining days, he is going to get this park built. Okay. And so he becomes this almost kind of Buddha-like, Jesus-like figure in that he will, you know, just kind of his persistent, mm-hmm. stubborn patience okay. will will get the bureaucracy to yield to this request. Okay. And he succeeds. Okay. So is this- that is half the movie. That's, that's half. half the movie. Oh, okay. Yeah. He, and this is why I love the movie. The, that's the first half. And then he's he dies. Um, he dies like halfway through the movie. Okay. Um, and then there's the rest of the movie, which is all of these other characters interpreting, misinterpreting, reinterpreting this man's life. Oh, nice. And, and there's this great uh, scene at a funeral uh, which really maybe one of the most uh, consequential scenes in the movie. So this scene at at, uh, at this at a funeral where they all get drunk to remember him, and they're all telling stories, and they're all just sort of distorted and lying, and mm-hmm. not really lying. That's too. That's the wrong word. Distorted, misrepresenting their memory of him mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because they can't actually. All they can do, with the exception of one of the characters who's this kind of quiet man that, you know, could could see uh, what the main character was doing. And then, of course, the women who uh, who do not have a prominent role in the film, but uh, were affected by, by his effort to build this park. Mm-hmm. Um, but all they're able to do is couch what he did in terms that 
like push the possibility outside of themselves. So they themselves are not, they can't make this transformation in their life, right? They can't mm. decide to live more authentically. They can't decide to live more in, in earnest or mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It be very present in their lives. They make excuses, right? Mm. And I, I love the movie for that second part. And then, you know, the kind of the, this, the scene that's really, really famous with him sitting on the, the swing in the snow and mm-hmm. this come where he dies on the swing, having successfully created this park, mm-hmm. uh, comes as a flashback, as a memory okay, um, of how he died. And, you know, I think one of the reasons it hits me the way that it does is because I've uh, been preoccupied with my own mortality for mm. ever, for as long really? as I remember from a young age. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. I, think, I don't ever think uh, you yeah. talked about that on the podcast before. Because I would have been, right? yeah, sure. been all over yeah. that. Maybe I haven't. I would have been all over that. I know. Cause yeah, I, yeah, cause yeah. I, I have it yeah, too, I st- or sl- maybe something slightly different, but yeah. Yeah. I still, um, you know, it doesn't happen every night. That would be a, an extreme exaggeration, probably not even every month, but, um, I will still wake up in the middle of the night with the absolute overwhelming concrete terror of mm. my impending death and just the enormity of that, um, mm-hmm. that, you know, just, and a, a, a kind of a, a featureless mm. wall that you okay. just nothing can you can see beyond and is going to subsume everything mm-hmm. uh, in your life. Anything that you were or will be. Um, uh, and I feel that very intimately, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. frequently. So, uh, but it's complicated, right? Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I mean, death is not complicated. Death is very simple, but uh, very. but <laughs> but. But we're all bound up around it, right? And so this character, like we have our own, however we confront our own mortality. And, you know, we we have different strategies for doing that. And some people I really think don't care that much. I I mean, I used to be very skeptical of this idea, Mm -hmm. but I think it's probably just some of us are built differently and it's not something that they, you know, get too worked up about. Mm. Um, But but then there's the... this sort of social complexity of it and all, all of the, the ways that we interpret the death around us. Yeah. Uh, and all of the ways that we interpret, uh, the loss of those we love and try and find meaning in mm-hmm. the loss, uh, of those we love. So I mean, that's one. Wow. I mean, I didn't expect to get that out of the film, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I'm so happy that you, you said it. I, what I wanted to ask you, how often do you watch the film? Uh, you know, not that often, Stephen. I, you know, once a year, every couple of years, mm-hmm. uh, or I'll watch a piece of it. Um, okay. And it's harder now. I had it. I owned it on mm-hmm. Blu-ray. Um, uh-huh. And I think I had that one on Blu-ray. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was on Blu-ray. But lost it in the in the fire in, in the, the house, fire. so mm-hmm. haven't. And I, it's probably available uh, to stream. I would imagine. I, don't I haven't think looked. So. Uh, yeah, I haven't looked. But um, mm-hmm. but I, you know, it's one of those things. Like lately, not that much. Every two three years. But okay. when I was younger, way more. You know, so more, yeah. much more often than yeah than I do now. But it it's one of those things that just, you know, it stays with you, uh, stays with me. And so, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, that's one. Well, I'd love it. I, what's number two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, so second one would probably be um, A River Runs Through It. Okay. I've heard of it. Do you know the story with um it's got uh it it's about uh Norman excuse me, Norman McLean, who was a English professor um and wrote a, a book, a novel, or it might be more of a novella, um mm-hmm. short uh called A River Runs Through It that got turned into a movie with Brad Pitt. And I was I just to say I do know did. just generally about it, but never read it before even seen the movie. So yeah. Oh. Oh, okay. Okay. So it's basically um, the story of this family in Montana mm-hmm. uh, that basically learned to live an authentic life through the action of fly fishing. Okay. And I am not a fisherman. I don't really care about it. <laughs> fishing is fine. I don't judge people that fish, but I'm not, you know, it's not like something that grabs me because of the activity. Mm-hmm. But it has beautiful language in it. Um, oh, wow. Okay. And um, there is uh, there's a Wordsworth poem that features very prominently in the film um, towards the end that uh, our thoughts do often reveal. Uh, oh, wait. Wait, is it? Uh, is it the words do often reveal thoughts that lie too deep for tears? Oh, basically, um, that's nice. Uh, intimations of him. Im- no, no, it, no. Is it Augury's? It is. Uh, oh my goodness! I, I, <laughs> it'll come. It'll come to me. I can't remember the name of the poem right now. Um, mm-hmm. Ode. Ode. I mean, is it it means intimations of immortality. Yeah, Augury's of innocence is Blake. Intimations of immortality. I think that's right. Intimations of immortality. And it contains a sentiment that I feel very strongly about. Okay. Which is that uh, cynicism is very easy um, for anyone of uh, slightly above average intelligence and in mm-hmm. that it is a much more inspiring, uh, though perhaps less funny because, <laughs> you know, obviously cynicism uh-huh. can be quite funny. Um, it's, it's more inspiring, admirable, in a more muscular way to move through your life to not become a cynic okay. and to to see the things that are uplifting in spite of the fact that you see all of the suffering and mm. pain that surrounds us okay. um you know you can't you can't make the second the second move is meaningless without the first right okay. so to just be someone that's like, oh, it's all going to work out. Everything is fine. It's all good. You know, like that, that is nearly meaningless. Um, Ooh, yes. If you don't also, if you don't also recognize the, the immense pain that many people are mm-hmm. suffering privately and the immense suffering that uh, great swaths of people suffer very publicly, but just, you know, maybe mm-hmm. not something that you're aware of, right. so, you know, oppressed peoples and mm-hmm. whether oppressed historically or in the present. Um, so, but that's the first move. Okay. You got to see that you got to know that you have to feel that. Okay. And then the second move is to not be dragged under by that. Okay. And, and that movie captures that second move, I think. 
Oh, that's kind of nice. Which I appreciate. Um, when did which the, I appreciate. When did the movie come out? And who else is in it besides Brad Pitt? Um, so you know, I'm just gonna have to. I'm just gonna google it i'm I'm really bad with uh actors names honestly mm-hmm. um my son my youngest son nine who's nine dean my, mm-hmm. my, his name is not nine but um he um he remembers actors names better than i do already <laughs> he's like oh that's the one with blah blah blah, blah. i can't even run off uh 1992 is when it came out okay and Greg Sheffer, uh, Craig Sheffer. So it's directed by Robert Redford, Craig Sheffer, Tom Skerritt, um, Brenda Blethen, Emily Lloyd. I don't know who a couple of those people are. I mean, I know who they are in the movie, but I don't know what else they did. Okay. So yeah, that's, that's the movie. It's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's got a nice score and, um, mm-hmm. so yeah, that's probably the second movie. Third one, um, Third one is tough because I okay. I've got a lot of movies that are just fun and I enjoy uh not even rewatching the whole thing, but just, mm-hmm. you know, rewatching scenes from. Okay. And you know, they're kind of your your straight ahead popcorn films, so I've definitely mm-hmm. seen portions of the matrix, uh, mm-hmm. many, many, many times. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've definitely seen portions of, uh, the Avengers, the very mm-hmm. first one, many, many, many times, mm-hmm. uh, and portions of, um, uh, Thor Ragnarok many times, which, um, you know, I, I one was, I just thought was a really fun movie. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. As well as some, you know, quite funny scenes with uh, the the Hulk. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I'm trying to think. What is um, Troy? I, you know, I've watched the fight scenes in that very many uh, Angelina a bunch Jolie, of times. Brad Pitt. Uh, yeah, I don't think I don't think. Oh wait, is Jolie in that one? I don't think Angelina Jolie is in that one, but Brad Pitt is in that one. He he plays Achilles. Um, oh, I'm thinking of Alexander. And, That's right. I'm thinking of Alexander. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think I saw. Oh, yeah, that one has uh, Colin Farrell in it, right? Yes. I don't know that mm-hmm. I saw that. How is it? I've never seen anything with Colin Farrell until very recently when he started working with Your Ghost Lanthimos. And that's when I went, oh, my God, this guy can really act. Because he was introduced to us as a cutie, yeah, he, a cutie guy, you know, a good, handsome guy. This man can act. He's pretty fantastic. Actually, no. He was, he, early on, he did some serious films. Mm-hmm. And then he transitioned to you know, kind of some probably stuff that's not so great. Mm-hmm. And then I guess you're saying he's returned to, uh, to doing some, no, I didn't know that there was a prior, actor, yeah. but that's awesome that he did. Cause maybe there are more films I can check out because yeah, Colin Farrell, I, yeah. in the lobster and the uh, year of the sacred deer, just very, very thoughtful actor. I, yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. yeah. Um, so okay so there you go those are my three those are your three um, i appreciate my, you broke my, out the last my, ones my third is a mashup yeah. portions <laughs> you know yeah. watching and i think when we think of portions it immediately made me think okay would he be able to watch portions he would be able to if there were no internet because sometimes you would just be crossing you know turn it in front of the television for example and it might be on and you would sure. maybe watch it or yeah. or turn on to it by accident and go oh yeah Sure. But portions, yeah. yeah, that feels very 21st century, you know, in terms of the regularity sure. of it. Yeah. So, um, or access to that. So thank you for your two 
point <laughs> uh, three and a, <laughs> three to five and a half. Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate that. I like the portions part. I hadn't considered that. I thought it was an interesting way to maybe think through um, access and social me- and media. You know, that, um, mm-hmm. having your phone and being able to access your computer, your emails. Uh, YouTube and an abundance of apps and just be able to see stuff like that, you know? And yeah. I, they were talking about, you don't want to see something like gravity on your phone because it is so expansive and you want to feel like you're in space mm. floating with Sandra Bullock. And I'm like, yeah, I get that. But I don't think other people are getting that. Not in a bad or good way. It's just, it's a piece. It's an, it's a, it's a, it's a media. People want to watch it. So you can. It, my, yeah. my point is, I'm a little loose on my point, which is there are different ways to watch things now that weren't ex- available to us pre 1996. You know. Yeah, I'm also skeptical of that claim because mm-hmm. um, we don't need a lot to go on to disappear from our current circumstances. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, mm-hmm. I, so you know, I don't know that you need. I mean, even though I might myself be preoccupied with, oh, I really want to see it in, you know, Dolby, you know, or something like that. I don't know that my emotional connection and my, my ability to kind of sink into another world Uh is really that affected by the scale of the image. Oh, I'm I'm pretty skeptical of that that idea. Yeah. I'm pretty skeptical. I agree with that I, because I think of books or a poem or something you've seen and you pimp, it's a, it's really fine. And you're just in real time looking at something, you're in that thing, you know? So it may, the scale may not really be that much of a factor. So I, I completely agree with yeah. that. I know yeah. people who or are like, mm-hmm. or like the history of relics. Like, you know, there's this really famous, uh, uh um, festival of the tooth. Okay. Um, the the Buddha's tooth, uh, I think it's Sri Lanka. Uh-huh. It's a fucking tooth, it's a, <laughs> it's and you see mm-hmm. like this entire universe in mm-hmm. this tooth, right? I mean, yeah. it becomes this completely immersive. Ob- like our imaginations are uh, enormous, enormous, <laughs> and and really don't need much to be propped up. I think it's. I think what um, what didn't come to mind, just came to mind a moment ago, was my ability to be able to sell you on the idea that you need to see it in Adobe Max. You know, that you're mm. going to have a much more mm. immersive experience mm. if your, sheets, sh- your seats are shaking, you know, or for you in this surround sound kind of thing. And in some case, there's a friend of mine who was a projectionist when he was a kid, like when he was a teenager mm. or what have you. And he is an expert on, don't go to that theater. They don't have great sound. Their films, you know, this is a little, I don't know about this. And we'll leave a film. You know, I like the film, but the, the acoustics were terrible, you know, and, and the seating mm. is awful. And so all of that matters to him in a way that doesn't matter to me or just doesn't come up as, it has to be like, you know, I don't know. The theater's got to be flooded and there's got to be, you know, people <laughs> shooting or something. Like, oh, that was terrible. Right, right. Otherwise, <laughs> I'm out with a bunch of people that I don't know. That's a really interesting experience. Um, and one, I think yeah. we, t- we, I don't know if we take it for granted. I just don't think that we think about what it means to hear other people respond to something that you don't know. I'm okay with that as long Absolutely. as it's not overwhelming, you know? So I appreciate sure. the, um, the, yeah. the group, the group experience in a lot of ways. But yes, like you, I know our imaginations are ex- just crazy expansive and they don't rely necessarily on the media or the, the format. 
you know, not really. No. Um, okay. So what are your three? What are my three? My three I mentioned, I think almost, I know it had to be a few years ago. I talked about mm-hmm. Andre Tarkovsky's um, films and that I really, really love stalker. Mm-hmm. And that's an immersive mm-hmm. experience. That is a tremendous film. And for those of you who do not know about this film, it was released in 1982, directed by Andre Tarkovsky. Um, in an unnamed country at, at an unspecified time, there's a fiercely protected people, uh, excuse me, protected post-apocalyptic wasteland known as the zone. And there are three people who go into the zone. The stalker leads a philosopher, and I believe he leads a scientist. And so the first part of the film is really soaked in this um, sepia tone, post-industrial. Mm. It's really harsh and cold. And the um, direction and and the cinematography is amazing because it feels like you're there in real time with it. There, you feel like you're feeling the tremors when the train goes past the house. And I feel the cold. Like, I feel like there's it's a cold mm. house. And so the stalker's getting ready to take these two men. Uh, the stalker's wife is like, don't go in there. You'll get shot because, you know, it's a really dangerous job. And so people hire him to do this. And so that part of the film, again, is up until a particular point until they get to the zone, which is in color. And it's kind of sh- not mm. shocking, but it's it's it moves in a different way when a color comes in. And they're looking for the space and the stalkers doing various things to get him to the space. And once they get to the space, it's sort of like a combination of both um, spaces the outside the zone, mm. the zone, and then inside of this apparatus's house, there is yet another zone. And the scientists and I think the writer begin to question um, the reason why they come to the zone, excuse me, I should have said this before, is that they're looking for something that's supposed to make all your dreams come true. Mm. And so when they get to it, they question whether or not they actually want to do that. And what would that mean for them? Um, mm. Again, it's a very slow film. I can put it on, fall asleep, wake back up, to, you know, watch it some more. I watch it. I've watched it at IFC in New York City on a big screen, the restored version of it. And it, it was just you. You don't go in there if you're tired. That's the first thing. You go in there ready to see things, but he keep. Mm-hmm. It requires a different set of skills to watch a film by Tarkovsky and other filmmakers like him because. They assume you're going to be with them, that you're not going to walk out for popcorn every three or four uh, minutes, you know, on your phone or whatever. That didn't happen back then anyway. But but a, yeah. a certain kind of attention that I appreciate that that film is re- requires of me. And I miss things. I've missed things. I've watched it like over and over at least once or twice a year since the restoration. And I want to say that was 2019 because I think I was working at NYU then. Um, but it was. Like I said, it was released in 1982. I wonder how they got certain shots. The cinematography is beautiful. It's just mm-hmm. transfixion. I mean, transfixing. I think Tarkovsky also did Solaris and a few other films that have some of those yeah, same qualities. Yeah, that's the one that I'm... Yeah. Yeah, that's most famous of his yeah. um, that I've seen. I bought his journals, like, you know, a, what do you call it? A, a collection, uh, selections from his journals. And he was a very, very thoughtful and engaged person who was thinking about the experience of the viewer on these films in a very personal and a very intimate way. So it wasn't like I'm talking to these people. It's like, well, if I, if, if we have these kinds of overhead shots, what do they do? 
you know, what, what part of the story we're trying to advance with this. And yeah, he was uh, notoriously, um, what do you call it? Notoriously, not gruff, but just a uh, demanding director. He's someone I think about from time to time when I think about what kinds of films would I make if they were, they had a documentary quality to them, you know, and he does that. So that's, that's Stalker. And the last two I'll say, I'll speak. And you said, so oh, sorry. is there any, is there any, um, you said you'll, you sort of, you know, kind of consume it slowly. Like, you know, sort of, you'll be asleep, you wake up, you watch, mm-hmm. is there any portion of the film that you find uh, most compelling? Is there anything that grabs you? I mean, you, you spend a lot of time talking about the house um, at the beginning and just sort mm-hmm. of the, the feelings that are conveyed in that space. I think, um, so there, there's a scene where the stalker himself is just lying in this really shallow um, pond or pool, pool of water. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see Detris and other things sort of float past him. And at one point, there's a dog that sort of walks past him as well. And this dog becomes, this dog apparently wasn't supposed to be in the movie, but became a part of the movie uh-huh. because it kind of, he kind of fit the, the ethic. I mean, the um, aesthetic of it, this, mm-hmm. this trying to find something and latching onto these group of men, but there are moments. I think what I'm mostly um, enchanted by are, is the acting, and I do believe there. It's a Soviet a Soviet film. I think they're speaking Russian, um, mm-hmm. and it is subtitled. How they're weighing their thoughts. It's it's very monologue-y. like they're talking to each other, but it's still very monologue-y. Mm-hmm. And they used to bother mm-hmm. me when it comes to films. It doesn't bother me here at all. They're they're trying to get at something in their own lives that can't be gotten at, and this zone mm-hmm. is promising them things. They're not sure they're willing to take that that next step to get to. That's one of the ways mm. I read it. But yeah, there's a lot of beautiful scenes in that film. But I think overall, yeah. I'm just really struck by the cinematography and how I don't miss anything. Like I don't feel like I'm missing anything in that film as we yeah. go along with the trio into the zone. Yeah, yeah. It sounds compelling. The I mean the the sort of the setup. I mean, of course, I, I immediately jump to thinking about kind of late Soviet era mm-hmm. living conditions yeah. and, and, you know, kind of the, the dichotomy between what, you know, sort of an average, what would we would consider middle-class life in Soviet bloc countries was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, as far as the infrastructure and the goods that were available right. and, and whatnot. I mean, not, not necessarily people's emotional lives, but that it was all around this greater ideological struggle, right? Yeah, this, a, that, mm-hmm. that you, to, to reach this kind of utopia or this, you know, grand struggle with the West or whatever. But anyway, um, yeah, I, I wrote it down. I will definitely put it, uh, put it on the list of things to watch. So with a, apparently coffee and time is what I, is what coffee, I need to, time, <laughs> to make sure I make it. <laughs> and a willingness to revisit scenes. You're like, what happened here? You know, and go back, you know, scroll back yeah. or what have you. But two two of these other films may not go on your list of films to watch. Um, they're both comedies. One is um, directed by Peter Bogdanovich, who who directed my fa- one of my favorite films of all time, which is um, What's Up Doc with Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill. It is okay. I think nineteen seventy three, 
And I was so struck by this film when I was a kid. You know, that, um, Barbara Streisand was having a moment, like in the late 60s into the 70s with mm-hmm. her film career. And she was also releasing albums. And this guy was all for it. <laughs> I loved Barbara Streisand and loved her humor. This film, um, What's Up Doc, he, so he doesn't know the film Cloud Noises off, but I'll talk about What's Up Doc very briefly. There's just this weird girl who walks around and accidents follow her. And she ends up at okay. she ends up at a convention, and there are a bunch of mis- there there are a lot of people, a lot of characters trying to get at um, some jewels, some f- money, and it's it, what do you call it? It's a uh, madcap comedy in the sense that there's going okay. to be a car chase in San Francisco, so there are going to be people coming over the the hills and all of that. Right, and right. Barbara Streisand, she's so charming and hilarious. But what I struck about that film, which is different from the film I'm going to talk about in a moment, which is this film called Noises Off in 1992, which was adapted by, adapted from the play of Noises Off. What's up, Doc? When it does have dialogue, it's very snappy and quick, but there are a lot of times where there's no dialogue and you just have, there's a lot of physical comedy. Barbara mm-hmm. Streisand is very good at, back then she was very good at physical comedy, just throwing herself on stuff. For sure. Just yeah, awesome. And yeah. Ryan O'Neill, who plays the stray guy, he just does it so well. And Madeline Kahn. So if 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 a film has Madeline Kahn, just go see it. She's going to give you something fun, whether it's the Mel Brooks films. <laughs> she's just she's she's. Told- I was immediately going to say it's certainly. I know Madeline Kahn from Mel Brooks films, but that's uh, yeah. But yeah. That's my that's the extent of my my familiarity. She's hilarious. She's one of my favorite people. So the film I'm talking about very briefly is called Noises Off, and it has Christopher Reeve, Carol Carol Burnett, John Ritter. Moriarty, da, 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 da. Uh, uh, the guy from uh, the butler from Batman, Michael Caine. Michael Caine is a director. Yeah, it's a play within a play within a play, and so would you get a lot of the back uh, story about the play as they're performing it and rehearsing mm-hmm. it, and once it goes into production, you're behind the scenes as these actors are fighting. And let me tell yeah. you, John Ritter, Carol Burnett. I mean, Christopher Reeve does his job as well. Mary Lou Henner. It's I'm, it, I think uh, both and I, Seth, both loved this film. It didn't do well at the box office, but it is so good. And it, I think it's it's an outlier. I'm to watch it. So I've, uh, I'm familiar with the play. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Uh, Michael Frayn, or I think, is, uh, is who wrote the play. Uh, mm-hmm. So play I'm familiar with. I didn't know there was a movie. I had no idea that there was yeah, a movie. It didn't do very well. Uh, a lot of people don't. <laughs> so... Yeah. So I definitely will. I mean, in a lot of ways, you know, a precursor to, I mean, I guess you can always go deeper with this, but, um, you know, to like the Larry Sanders show, um, Mm, mm -hmm, or, mm -hmm. you know, kind of like the, the, the story within the story. I mean, Noises Off takes it a couple extra moves, but, um, but, Mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, but this idea of putting on a story about stories, and the production of the stories and the pr- production itself is, you know, mm-hmm. uh, kind of an impor- important element in the in the narrative. So, uh, yeah, I had no idea it was a movie. I definitely will have to. Molly would uh, enjoy watching that too. I, I think. think you guys will really like it because, like, everyone does their job, and I, I'm not sure where I was. I was, I know I was in Toledo, but I'm not sure where I was mentally. But I, when I first saw that, I was like, "This is one of the best films I've ever seen in my life." And it's not the greatest film. It's just that mm-hmm. that physical comedy that I spoke of in What's Up Doc with Barbara Streisand. I love physical comedy. Not gratuitous physical comedy. And this is the thing. So you're behind stage and you're trying to get on stage and say your lines, you know, 
Yeah, mm-hmm. so you know about Noises Off, but I'd recommend anyone to take a look at that. So, sorry, that's three films, but there's one more, and that is... All right, okay, and, bonus and round. I, a bonus round, and I'll do it the way you mm-hmm. did it. I'll, I won't say portions. I'll say that it most any of John Waters' films, to me, are rewatchable. They are funny. Okay. They the, the dialogue is great. The situations are absurd. And Serial Mom is with Kathleen Turner. She I remember seeing it as a kid going... This is fantastic. This is just, she's perfect. She's a serial killing mother, suburban mother. Okay. And she, and she goes, she goes in. She looks like she's having fun with the role. Um, Sam Watterson from Law and Order is there. Ricky Lake is in it. Mm. And of mm-hmm. course, his cast of characters who follow him from film to film, you know, different people that have appeared in his film since, yeah. the, since I guess the seventies or something, but rewatchable films, serial mom, um, uh, Cecil be demented, a <laughs> uh, low down dirty shame, which I think it, his is his most recent one. Very good films, uh, I'll give you that and I, because of the humor and because you're looking at people who he often collects people like Patty Hearst and other folks who are mm-hmm. notorious in other ways who become actors and now they're in his films and you kind of look to see him, you know, look for them when it when he releases a film. So. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so in the bonus round, I'd probably also put in as far as ones that are that are rewatchable. Um, it, it kind of in in the spirit of some of the yours would be Blazing Saddles. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I I have seen that movie, and and in an, in a funny way, um, when I was about twelve, mm-hmm. um, I would watch Blazing Saddles every day after school. I had it on. I had a I had a VCR <laughs> tape of it, and I would watch I'd watch Blazing Saddles every day after school. Not Star Wars, Blazing Saddles. Blazes. I mean, not that I haven't seen Star Wars a bunch of times, but uh, but uh, yeah, Blazing Saddles. I just watch it over and over. I think again. that Mel Brooks was checking out, um, looking out for his kids, though. He knew that like the some of the jokes were adult, of course, but like he, yeah, I'm sorry, he he had it all over a lot of directors when it came to punchlines and um, just getting people. Double tendres and other things. Mel Brooks, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And it was the first time I realized um, Blazing Saddles was kind of my first awareness of genre. Okay, because I realized that um, I mean I didn't have the language for it at the time, but how difficult uh, third acts and uh, are for mm. comedies. They're oh, just okay. you know, you okay. know, just. The, this this setup, you know, and it's uh, it connects to a pretty famous um, problem that the early, you know, kind of the golden age of Saturday Night. Well, I guess you could argue about what the golden age of Saturday Night Live is, but but one of these uh, ages that is uh, in uh, the uh, should be in the conversation about golden ages with Saturday Night Live is you know uh, John Belushi and Chevy Chase and Gilda mm. Radner, etc. When they first got Saturday Night Live going, they never knew how to end the skits. No, they you know do the not. joke is the setup. You know the, the joke is the setup, and and then you know that's the once the situation has kind of evolved, like how do you how do you exit? You know how do you how do you conclude? Mm-hmm. Comedies don't lend themselves to these kind of to, those types of comedies don't lend themselves to those kind of conclusions when it's the situation and the physical nature of the comedy. So mm-hmm. same Mel Brooks's movies are all this way is, mm-hmm. which is that, you know, first act, second act, you know, are funny, 
it's engaging. But then the third act is all like, I don't know that I've really seen a comedy that it, it doesn't leave you with the same sort of dramatic finality mm. um, or culmination that a drama would. I mean, although that sounds uh, like uh, patently obvious because they're very different. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe trying to fit genres, but a genres ideas onto another. Um, yeah. But the third act problem is, is, I mean, it's still going on on, on um, Saturday Night Live. They'll just stop a skit because there's, <laughs> yeah. they've gone as far as <laughs> they can with the it. bit. And a bit, I think, yeah. depends on the bit. Like, how far are you going to go with the bit? How You've got people in, you've said it three or two or three times, you know that this guy is going to start talking again or, you know. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love this idea of thinking about films. Like, I think What's Up Doc had a pretty good third act. Mm-hmm. I think... What mm-hmm. I remember of Young Frankenstein, I thought there, I was okay with that third act. I don't think I was left wanting anything. A Dove Noises Off is just what it is. It's it's a it's a play that's been adapted for the screen, so there's a built-in yeah, ending yeah. there. And yeah, 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 yeah. And some of my favorite comedies, Jen Waters with Serial Mom. I mean, she goes to court, she gets off, and then kills somebody and stares at. I'm sorry if I'm ruining this for you, Travis, but for anyone okay. else, I'm just it's like, fine. <laughs> it's, it's okay. Let's just say, um, just to say, she's she is actually serial mom, and we watch her kill all these people, and it it's it's so patently ridiculous that if you're going along and you're looking yeah. at it too seriously, then this is not your film because it's it's supposed yeah, to make yeah. you think about people's attraction to um, spectacle, which is yeah, which is the whole point of the film by. Uh, Oh God, Jordan um, Jordan Peele's Nope. It's a very interesting. I love that film, by the way. I've seen it twice. How, how was it? Yeah. I've oh, seen, okay. So twice, I yeah. I got a I got a bad recommendation for it then, or not necessarily bad, but the person I know that saw it didn't uh, thought it was just kind of meh. Um, so I'll check it out. I would I w- I would try to see it, and yeah, I'd love to hear what you think about it because of where, where you're coming from with film and thinking about. Yeah, I'll stop there. I'll stop there because I think it's okay. it's it's I I appreciated a lot of what it did. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. So I will check it out. Um okay, so we're at like we're coming up on uh Yeah. Well, yeah, it's like we're nearly at an hour. So we I don't know that we have <laughs> time. It's certainly not in the same way that we covered. I'll give you my my top 1 <laughs> <laughs> for places, um, okay, it would, it would certainly be New York. Would be for oh, me. Would definitely okay. be uh, the place which I've talked about on the podcast before. And yes. it's I love big cities because mm-hmm. I like people, and right. uh, I like uh, I love, I adore, um, and am moved by the things that mm-hmm. uh, big groups of people who don't know each other can accomplish. Um, ah, and uh, okay, you know, and New York's a pretty good example of that. So it is a big, very big example for the cultural institutions that we've talked about before, in different episodes. Um, yeah, um, lots of different kinds of people here. I feel at home in Harlem, and I feel comfortable in New York in general. Um, I mm. look forward to leaving it, in the sense that, like, I'll go on a trip, but I love coming back to it. There's a familiarity, yeah, there's yeah. a level of comfort that. I've never had of any city that I've chosen before. I, this is the only city I've chosen to live in other than Atlanta for school. But mm-hmm. but this city, I'm like, oh, jackpot. This is the kind of thing that continues to um, engage me, 
it's funny because this is your th- place that you'd revisit, but apparently I'm here every day visiting. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love here. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, I think that you, you, and this is probably true of anywhere you go, but I, I think it, if you, you find out what you're made of in New York City in a way that I don't mm. think that you're challenged to in any other place. Mm. I could be wrong, but I think it's the only really international city in terms of people actually mixing and be taking the same transportation mm. or going to the same cultural events. And of course, some things are partitioned off, but there are maybe li- London too. I would maybe put London on the list. I feel like London is really, I have to look at London again. I'm going to be going there next year for a project. And I've been there a few times and I, it something about it was untu- wasn't touchable to me, but I think it's because how quickly okay. how quickly I was there. I was there for a program, a reading, and then I was gone, or for a couple mm-hmm. times for conferences. But yeah, thank you for that. I want to think about London differently while I go steal my stuff back from the yeah. British Museum and go give it back to all the people <laughs> that they plundered and stole those things from. Yeah, I'll be there for that. That's thank every museum. Coming. That's every museum, though. I mean, you got That's every museum. It's just Listen, the British taking, were really good at I it. I am taking the Queen's <laughs> death as an opportunity to go to the British Museum <laughs> and just throw things out like it were like, you know, hey, come get your pyramids. Um, but anyhow. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm, I mean, I do, I mean, I certainly think you're right about New York. Um, Mm -hmm. and I would probably, yeah, I mean, it's a tough call for me. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I would probably put New York above London, although London's a super close and I might not, I don't know. It's, it's a tough call. The, I, Mm -hmm. it's probably the thing that edges out New York over London for me is, uh, um, it's just the city is awake. Um, mm. all night and London is definitely not, um, you know, there's, there's kind of a bedtime. The city definitely goes to bed. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, in New York, I don't really, you know, it doesn't, I mean, it's a, obviously a cliche, the city that never sleeps, et cetera. But, um, yeah. but yeah, but I, I would probably, but I mean, London is an incredibly international city. I mean, mm-hmm. you get lots of cultures, uh, mm-hmm. rubbing up against each other and not just Europeans and Russians, you know, cause mm-hmm. we're all the oligarchs store, uh, store their money. But, no, the wind rush generation uh, from the Caribbean, of course, the Turks, Turkish folk. I think the Turkish folk there were too, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously South Asian communities are all over. All over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, right. but I agree. And in, in certainly in ways, uh, London and New York in ways that Paris is not, even though I also love Paris, but um, uh, in ways that Paris is not, um, mm-hmm. does certainly feel like an international city, an international place, certainly. Mm-hmm. So, I think, what is it that we have? Okay, so I'll do one of mine very briefly. And I think it's, um, you know, it's a no-brainer for me. It's my home, in my hometown, Toledo, Ohio. Mm. I spent um, a great deal of my life in Toledo till I was, I think, the age of 30. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. And then I moved to Atlanta for a couple of years for school. And then I moved. In between there, I was at the Library of Congress for a summer in 96, and then I moved to New York, and I've been here since December of 97. Going back to Toledo is a, um, isn't always pleasant because sometimes it's related to death or related to um, other things, but sure, sure. mostly yeah. I'd say I, I, ha- I hated Toledo when I was growing up because I hated the way it felt like it was, de- it was a dead-end town, and it, w- 
it wasn't it wasn't dead end. It's just that the industry was dying in a lot of time, you know, post-industrial moment, very religious, very unyielding, very, you know, very partitioned off, you know, in terms of neighborhoods mm-hmm. and so forth. And there wasn't a lot of development. So by the time I left, there there were issues with crack and gangs and so forth. And so mm-hmm. watching the decimation of various communities I grew up around with, was, it's just depressing, right? Um, yeah. But I will say this, that going back, I've been reading about Toledo, I've been reading about Ohio history, and thinking mm-hmm. about architecture. Anywhere I go, I love architecture. I want to know, then I want to know about migration, immigration patterns there. I want to know about the character of the towns. The three um, towns that I love mm-hmm. is Providence, Toledo, and New Orleans, and they're all different um, differently mm-hmm. um, founded and known for different things, but they all enchant me because there's just, I can go there for literature, like I mentioned, architecture, but I can also go there for food. You know, I want to know what the food mm-hmm. ways are, you know. And I think every town can tell you something about the U.S., at least in the U.S., rather, mm-hmm. based on how it was founded, mm-hmm. what's available there, what people value, um, how, like, I felt like Toledo, was a, Toledo is a mid-sized town that since the 1970s, half of its population has left. And people continue to, mm. and they call it the brain drain. And it's, oh, people yeah. can get better opportunities in other places. You know, New York Calling, you know, or San Francisco or Atlanta. Um, but I am I, really, um, I, I'm loving on Toledo a lot more um, because of what it's revealing to me in terms of its early industrial roots. Um it's racial issues over the years, how they, um, these, mm-hmm. what do you call it? The um, exodusters that came up from the South looking for places to live, big cities like Chicago, Detroit, mm-hmm. these really industrial cities who ended up in, in Toledo, which had a very robust industrial moment, you know, but it never mm-hmm. recovered after the 60s. It was on its way down there. And a lot of that is attributed to um, the advent of suburbs, suburban life. People, so their downtown mm-hmm. died because everyone lived out there but also mm-hmm. it was white flight from those formerly italian polish mm-hmm. um neighborhoods or a few others as well so anyway i'm really enjoying just going back to toledo and trying to see it differently from the way that i differently from the way i saw it as a kid do you know yeah so that, those course. kinds of things are fun yeah um do you have you been to i mean of course you've been um how does Toledo compare to other larger cities in Ohio? So like Cleveland and Columbus, like what is, um, what is the character, is the character of the city similar or different in what ways? The character is different. We're closer to Michigan. We're like 45 minutes away from Detroit and um, mm-hmm. Ann Arbor, four hours away from Chicago. So there's geography. I would say it's different in character in that it's one of the more dangerous cities to live in, in terms of crime, in terms right. of drugs. Um, I'd say it's different in terms of when people think about Cleveland and Columbus and Cincinnati, they're they're like, yeah, the sea cities. And Toledo's kind of like, oh, yeah, I remember driving through Toledo to go to Detroit. <laughs> I remember driving through Toledo to go there. And I think, so we're, we're still a... a the glass city. So that's one of our um, industries along with Jeep. Mm. Um, we're also in a way a university town, the university of Toledo continues to um, eat up real estate and it's good engineering. Is Toledo, hmm? 
is Toledo as segregated as like a city like Milwaukee or in a similar way? Or, uh, I mean, it's Milwaukee, hard. I think is like it's hard. Op- often at the top of the list for like most segregated cities in America. So I would say because there's so much interracial marriage and so inter- interracial mm-hmm. mixing. And so it's largely mm-hmm. white then you have black and you have Mexican populations and you have mm-hmm. everyone else who might come there for school, like folks from Africa, different parts of Africa, usually West Africa, come there for school because of engineering. So I think I'm not sure how to um, rate the racism um, because I don't know much about Milwaukee. <laughs> how much racism do you have? We have this many. Um, <laughs> it's more, I, I guess I actually didn't, I did, it's a really funny line, but I actually didn't mean it that way. I meant, oh, okay. sorry, I misunderstood. Um, I, 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 no, 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 it's not, it's not, totally off base. It's more just, you know, how did the city deal with its racial anxiety, right? So yeah, the South gets shit on all the time, oh, yeah. uh, but it is a far less segregated portion of the country. There is a lot, there are a lot more uh, races living on top of each other in Southern cities than in most Northern cities. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, maybe New York is an exception, but uh, like mm. I said, so these Northern cities where, um, you know, I think Richard Wright wrote about this a little bit, right? So, I mean, the, you know, obviously these Northern cities mm-hmm. have, you know, they were on the right side of history as far as the civil war goes, certainly, but in how, in how those places dealt with the anxiety of, of, of mm-hmm. racial mm-hmm. intermingling is very different than how the South dealt with it. Right. They're, they're, they're radically different. So my, I guess my question is, mm-hmm. is there, is there a similar character in how those two Northern cities dealt with that? So like Milwaukee, like I said, is, is super segregated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but you just said Toledo's there's in your experience, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of interracial marriage and, and whatnot. So, I mean, that would, that would seem to suggest not quite as segregated. Right. So that's um, right. And that, and the yeah, operative anyway. word here is suggested, uh, suggest because it's a class thing as well. Mm. It's a very class based mm-hmm. city and mm-hmm. that, I think I wanted to address this idea of the Northern city being, you know, somewhat less racist or more tolerating than, well, my father who lived both in the South and the North, the majority of his life in the North felt that his experience in the South as a teenager or just growing up, he did, he didn't really mix with whites until much later. He went to a segregated school. Mm-hmm. When he came to, um, to Toledo throughout the years, he would tell me stories that led me to believe that it's, he didn't actually say this, that he preferred people to call him a nigger straight out. It was that he felt like the South was more direct mm. with their um, segregation, mm-hmm. whereas the North was, oh, no, that South isn't available to you. We lied. It was our mistake. You're actually mm. over four blocks and over seven blocks that way, mm. you know, in terms of redlining and other kinds of um, mm. racial um Demarc moments, you know, that continue to happen today, as a matter of fact. So I felt like he, um, that was his experience. And I've also read that as well, that people were coming up from the South and experiencing a different kind of racial terror. But that, yeah, and it really boils down to people in, 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 in neighborhoods and, and um, who gets what kinds of jobs, you know, kind of tell yeah. you what you need yeah. to know about a city, you know, a history of a city. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, 
Yeah. The, the most pernicious thing about redlining was that, you know, it wasn't about the job necessarily. Like they would literally, I mean, there would be, you know, black families with equivalent incomes would be shoehorned into, uh, it would be shoehorned into neighborhoods that they, they could have easily afforded neighborhoods that were far more expensive than that. And they were just kind of, you know, they were, you know, segregated in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, which really, I mean, obviously I'm not telling you anything you don't know. This is, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, whatever. Yeah. You know, all this stuff. So, I mean, I just, but it, it did, it, it absolutely, it, yeah, it was a very, it's a very slow dying phenomena. I'm not, I'm not saying it's dead. I'm saying it's a slow dying things that people, it's just, there are just entrenched attitudes that people like it's invisible to them. And so they don't, you know, they don't see the ways that, that uh, they try and hold back the tide. Yeah. I mean, and so when you said you, I might know about this, but maybe somebody on the podcast doesn't, I feel like people have to constantly tell these stories in different ways, whether it's through entertainment or the news, just this stuff is still happening. There was a story recently where, a group of black, a black neighborhood um, people who own houses were taxed more than whites, and now they're suing the city. I mean, so that's very. Recent. Is that right? Where was this at? Detroit. Where I was believe. this at? Mm-hmm. Detroit. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I mean, I, I do think um, you know there are fewer of the stories than there were twenty or thirty years ago, but I don't know. You know, I have some. I try to have some compassion for these kind of historical trends is I guess what I'm trying to say, because it's people are just filled with a lot of fear, (laughs) lots of fear. And, and, you know, probably a set quotient of fear that's never going to actually go away. It just gets, it gets bottled up in, in placed in, in different areas Mm -hmm. of your life. And, because of that, um, mm-hmm. because of that that quotient of fear, um, some aspect of of racism is just is ineradicable. Like you're just not going to ever really fully be able to get rid of of all of it for all people uh, ever. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that'll ever happen. I um, <laughs> because we're at about an hour, um, we have to um, wrap up the episode. Love to revisit that the eradication of racism is it, it can't happen. Um, I would love to talk about that later. That would be great because I have some thoughts about. I, I don't know if it's yeah. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. So can we? Okay. Yeah. All right. That like, sounds yeah, good. Like, sure. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Um, so okay. I I I appreciate the 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 top threes. So we got yeah. we got through one list we got and, one and touched list. it another. So yes, cool. Um, so okay. All right. Well, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, sir. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.